0: I think it's really about viewing a person holistically. So it's important for a physician or a practitioner to always be mindful of that. Taking the time to understand who the patient is in front of them, Where do they live? What's the community that supports them? Who cares for them? What's their support network? What are the conditions that they're returning to after being discharged from the hospital or an urgent care setting? Whether they have the support for follow-up and continuity of care? And thinking of other professions that help support the patient in addition to ourselves, such as nursing, social work, physical therapy, and so forth.
1: That's Dr. John Paul Sanchez, executive associate, vice chancellor at the University of New Mexico Health Sciences Center, Office for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. What drove Dr. Sanchez to medicine was to have an impact on health inequities, but no one was talking about them. In this episode, Dr. Sanchez shares his passion for embedding equity, DEI best practices, and his own journey in medicine. He discusses all this and more with AMA senior news writer, Sarah Berg. Here's Sarah.
2: Hello, I'm AMA Senior Newswriter Sarah Berg. Today I'm with Dr. John Paul Sanchez, who serves as Executive Associate Vice Chancellor at the University of New Mexico Health Sciences Center Office for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Dr. Sanchez has extensive knowledge of national DEI best practices and leadership experience. Thanks for being with me today, Dr. Sanchez.
0: It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Sarah.
2: Of course, today we're going to hear directly from Dr. Sanchez about his work and experienced approach to implementing change and aligning with DEI at an organizational level. Dr. Sanchez, how has your work in diversity, equity, and inclusion influenced your approach to patient care?
0: Thank you, Sarah. I think that's um, the core question. Um, So I would say that the great thing about diversity, equity, and inclusion is that it gives you a better appreciation of inequities in communities that we live in or communities that we're a part of. It's those same communities that our patients come from. So by getting a better understanding of various inequities by chronic disease, infectious diseases, or even living conditions, uh, we could provide more of a holistic care for our patients. For me, as an emergency medicine practitioner, that's extremely important. We're not only um, trying to stabilize a patient in the emergency room, but really also trying to understand the support network or system that will be in place for the patient after discharge. And as we think about that, we need to consider social determinants of health.
2: Can you share some examples of how you've promoted diversity and inclusion within the medical field throughout your career?
0: Well, I am a a proud uh, product of many pipeline and and pathway programs, even starting as early as as a um, college-level student. For me, just as I've benefited from a variety of these programs that have enabled me to explore not only a career in medicine, but also in public health. It's been really important for me to be a part of those programs and and give back. And even after benefiting from certain programs, I continued to serve in some capacity as a medical student and during residency and fellowship, and currently as a faculty member. In my current role um, within the HSC Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, we have a number of pathway programs, um, really K through 20, uh, similar to other academic health centers across this country. And I encourage everyone um, to even take a couple of hours to be a part of these programs, either serving as a teacher or an educator of an interactive workshop. Today, I actually spent um, an hour uh, with high school students teaching them how to splint. Um, It could be as simple as that, or being involved in helping them with their CVs, their personal statements as they apply to their next educational level, or aspiring um, to run a program as a director or even as an assistant dean.
2: Can you share more of your medical career journey with our listeners?
0: Sure. So I I think like many of you um, who are listening um, today, we were drawn to medicine because we had witnessed in health inequity in our community or saw a family member um, die um, from from disease, have significant morbidity and mortality. For me, uh, I was born in in 74 um, and grew up in in the 80s during the HIV AIDS crisis. And I remember um, going to a funeral of a family member who had passed away from AIDS. And it was the experience of not only seeing um, this family member or hearing of this family member having died, but sort of the taboo nature of discussions around HIV-AIDS, also known as GRID back in that day. Seeing um, how people were uncomfortable talking about what he had died from, reading in the newspaper and seeing on TV, how people were succumbing to the illness in very brief periods of time and there was no effective treatment. Most concerning um, was the heightened discrimination that um, individuals who had been become infected were facing. And um, incredible isolation from family, their loved ones, their community, dying by themselves, even the healthcare system struggled um, to provide compassionate care for those people who had become infected. I couldn't imagine what that experience was like, um, but I knew, and even at an early age, I feared um, of becoming infected and dying in that same fashion. um, very quickly alone and isolated. And it drew me to want to not only get my MD to prevent um, or to think about treatment modalities to keep people um, from dying, but also to concurrently get my MPH and and explore what factors were contributing to people becoming infected, and for certain communities to be disproportionately impacted by HIV-AIDS. Not only um, those uh, individuals who identified as men who have sex with men, or those individuals who identified as gay, but all communities, and we knew, we know that during that time, and even today, um, the HIV and, and AIDS uh, prevalence um, is significant within our communities of color, um, Hispanic, Latino, and African American, Black communities. And so, you know, that was a major driver for me pursuing um, clinical medicine, but also public health.
2: It's very powerful and very moving it's it sounds like a great journey that you took and really inspiring what motivated you to focus on pre-faculty development and how has it contributed to increasing diversity among medical professionals
0: so i i you know i i can think back (laughs) to my early days of of attending medical school and how excited and honored i was to be able to attend medical school and attend medical school in the bronx where i grew up Um, at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Um, I knew it was gonna be uh, heavy in science, um, molecular and cell biology, um, anatomy, histology. And as I was going through the coursework in the first couple of months, I also um, expected that we would be talking about many of the the things that I just mentioned that drove me to medicine. Understanding why there were health inequities in, in my community um, in the Bronx and New York City, and similar communities across the country, communities of color. What I noticed uh, in, in sitting in the classroom was that two things. One, that wasn't the case. Um, you know, very rarely, if at all, uh, did we talk about um, those conditions, um, those ailments, those diseases that were disproportionately impacting hispanic latinos individuals of lgbt identity in the bronx or anywhere in the country Um, and that was really disheartening um, because really what drove me to medicine was to have an impact on those inequities and there wasn't a space in the classroom through the curriculum to discuss that in a day-to-day basis even in a month or in a year wow the second thing that i think was really surprising is that many of the people who were teaching weren't from the community.
2: So it's a lot of you wanted to see more people look like you so that you can reach more of that community?
0: Absolutely. I was hoping to have lecturers that would bring those topics up, engage the students, have a robust discussion of what's going on and, and how we could be more effective. What are the best practices? What could we do in the future? to change those health inequities. So it wasn't in the curriculum, it wasn't being brought in the classroom, and it didn't seem like the individuals who were teaching the materials um, were ready or prepared to have those discussions. And and that really um, inspired me uh, to think about how can we diversify the academic medicine workforce? How do we move to um, further bring in greater representation and diversity of lecturers, faculty, researchers and leaders, and, and that really helped shape my interest in diversifying um, academic medicine.
2: Do you think we're moving that needle so far, making some sort of an impact on that?
0: Well, I, th- I think the needle is always moving, <laughs> and I think we're we're hopeful that um, the the needle is moving in the right direction to really address health inequities. I, I do think we've seen um, improvements in um, curricular content in medical schools. Definitely, there's a lot more materials that you can glean and and find in the published literature. Medit Portal is is one of the journals where you could find many new publications, teaching and learner assessment materials that support DEI-related work. And and I've been able to be a part of Medit Portal and help build that DEI um, collection. And we have seen uh, a slight bump in the number of diverse faculty that I think can speak more to those health inequities that exist within um, the Hispanic, Latino, African American, and Native American communities. But the reality is that um, this increase um, has been minimal. Minimal when you consider the magnitude of health inequities that are affecting those communities. I mean, still currently, only about 10 percent of faculty in our allopathic medical schools are of those three groups. And and that fluctuates across medical schools. And like I said, only 10% yet in the general population, um, about a third of um, U.S. inhabitants and residents are African American, Native American, or Hispanic. So we still have quite, uh, quite a bit to grow to reach parity. Um, it's not only about a number, um, but you do need a workforce that comes from the communities most affected um, with these conditions um, to better describe them and better engage the future generations of clinicians on how to address these health inequities. So uh, I'm hopeful we're making progress.
2: I'm hopeful too. I think we can do it. Um, could you discuss some key findings or insights from your publications that have highlighted the experiences of people from historically excluded racial and ethnic groups in healthcare?
0: Absolutely. So um, back in 2008 um, with colleagues, I was able to form an initiative titled Building the Next Generation of Academic Physicians, also known as BINGAP. And the focus of BINGAP has, has been to work with um Medical students um, who are leaders of various organizations, such as the medical student section of AMA, the Latino Medical Student Association, the Student National Medical Association, ANAMS, and APAMSA, um, to think about what are the um, factors, um, the facilitators, and the barriers that influence their interest or career intent towards becoming a future faculty member or senior leader within our academic health centers, or more specifically, our medical schools. And so I went around and and I I did focus groups and surveys with students of, of all these great organizations. And we picked these organizations because students who are part of these organizations have declared that they wanna be leaders. They wanna be leaders in addressing health inequities. So I really wanted to understand how do we keep them Um, within our academic medicine workforce to become faculty and senior leaders. And what we learned is that they were really knowledgeable about the steps to becoming um, an OBGYN, a pathologist, a surgeon, an ER practitioner, but they didn't even know that um, they were good enough or smart enough to become a future faculty member or to be a dean or a vice-chancellor of an institution. No one had called on them to think about those positions. No one had defined or described those positions to them. No one had explained the importance. So fundamentally, it was about initially creating materials just to give them a definition and an explanation of what is a faculty member or what it means to be a dean of student affairs or a dean of education or a dean of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So knowledge is key.
2: Yeah, knowledge is key. That's really wonderful, and I think that's great work, and hopefully it continues.
1: Curated from more than 3,000 major newspapers, magazines, and journals, the AMA Morning Rounds newsletter delivers the top stories in healthcare right to your inbox, Monday through Friday. Subscribe today and check out all the AMA's free newsletters at ama-assn.org slash myinbox. That's ama-assn.org/myinbox.
2: Um, in your work, you've emphasized an intersectional lens when examining the experiences of different groups. How does this approach contribute to a more comprehensive understanding of health disparities and patient care?
0: Absolutely. So, I, I you know, I, I think the good thing is that medicine has move to look at um, an individual beyond a disease, um, to look at an individual holistically to better understand what were the factors that contributed to that person being uh, uh, inflicted um, with a certain condition, Um, really thinking about social determinants of health um, as a way of coming up with more prevention modalities, thinking about the most effective treatment modalities, and then also the support systems in place to help an individual um, thrive uh, and remain functional despite a condition. I think it's really about viewing a person holistically. Um, And sometimes when we use the word intersectional, we're only thinking of one identity or two identities. And the reality is uh, an individual's existence um, and identity can be very fluid. So it's important for a physician or a practitioner to always be mindful of that, taking the time to understand who the patient is in front of them, where do they live, what's the community that supports them, who cares for them, what's their support network, what are the conditions that they're returning to after being discharged from the hospital or an urgent care setting, whether they have the support for follow up and continuity of care and thinking of other professions that help support the patient in addition to ourselves, such as nursing, social work, physical therapy, and so forth. So I'd like to think that we're moving beyond this notion of looking at a patient through an intersectional lens, but really treating a patient holistically, not only through the lens of medicine, but really the health professions, Right, a team-based approach to optimizing care and outcomes for the patient.
2: So it goes beyond just what happens in the doctor's office. It includes every aspect of their life.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not just a disease, right? It's looking at the conditions that led to that person developing that illness and how do we prevent them um, from getting a recurrence or getting sicker.
2: So you are the editor of the book, Succeeding in Academic Medicine, a Roadmap for Diverse Medical Students and Residents. What are some important strategies or recommendations you provide to support the success of people from historically excluded racial and ethnic groups in the medical field?
0: Well, one, um, thank you for sharing the book, you know, we we really, myself and, you know, I, I had over, um, I think about. 30 incredible colleagues um, from across the country who represent um, different identities contribute to this book Um, with a particular focus on women, um, racial, ethnic, uh, minoritized individuals and sexual and gender minoritized individuals. Um, And and we have focused the book to provide best practices for those groups because we know those three groups have been historically underrepresented within the academic medicine workforce. The book is is really written to encourage and inspire and provide knowledge and skills to medical students, residents, and fellows who collectively, we can call them pre-faculty because we want them as pre-faculty to stay on track and become Eventually faculty within our allopathic and osteopathic medical schools and some of the recommendations Or some of the strategies that we take through the book is one giving them fundamental knowledge as mentioned It's really important um, to explain to students what it means to be a faculty member Or Dean or vice chancellor or another type of administrator within the medical school how what they're currently doing right now is preparing them to be future successful faculty or senior administrators. So, for example, um, many of our faculty are teachers and educators. And our medical students or in residents are often engaged in teaching and developing curriculum. So it's good just to remind them: look, the teaching and the curriculum development you're doing right now at the medical school, in religious entities, out in the community, that's giving you a foundation. That i want you to continue to build on so that you could be a more effective clinician educator or teaching faculty member in the future and just making that connection for individuals does multiple things one it connects the dots but two it lets them realize that they're good enough and smart enough to hold this esteemed position. Often students, when they see a faculty member in stage, they're looking at them in awe. And you'll hear, especially from students of color, oh, I can never be a faculty member. I'm never as good, I'll never be as good, I'm not as smart as that individual. And that's simply not the case, right? With time, you acquire all this information, but you definitely have the assets and the foundation to be a future uh, faculty member. So it really helps to address imposter syndrome. Uh, it helps in the book, it helps talking about, it, it helps students think about building diversity capital as a means to becoming a future uh, faculty member or senior administrator. Um, and, and I think it, it also, another important piece that we focused on in the book is most of, as I mentioned, most of the co-authors are are individuals of communities underrepresented within academic medicine. So as students are reading these chapters, they're also reading the personal narratives of the chapter co-authors. And they're seeing stories and images of individuals who identify, once again, as women, LGBT, African-American, Hispanic, Native American. And that in itself is very important powerful, especially if they don't have those individuals teaching in their medical school.
2: Right. Do you have any specific success stories you can share?
0: So I would say, um, you know, what I always tell um, students that I run into is that um, I share information about becoming a future faculty member or becoming a dean, not because I want everyone to come back to me every time they see me in the hallway and say like, yes, yes, Dr. Sanchez, I'm going to be a faculty member or dean. Absolutely not. I want you to be a critical thinker. I want you to be happy in your professional journey. It's so much more impactful and powerful for me when I hear a student come up to me and say like, look, Dr. Sanchez, I read the book. I went to the seminar. I'm thinking about the information, you know, um, I, I know I'm good enough. I know I have the knowledge and skills to, to eventually be a faculty member. Right now I haven't decided, but I'm still thinking about it. Can we, can we set up a meeting because I still have additional questions? That's, that's what I, I really enjoy and I appreciate um, from students because um, they're critically thinking about this as a career opportunity. And what's beautiful within Bing Gap is that we've been able to develop a network where those conversations continue to happen on our monthly conference calls. Now we've established similar to having, you know, AMA has um, chapters within medical schools. Now we have Bing Gap chapters where those type of conversations are happening between faculty and students within medical schools. And so we're starting to not only develop a network, but a lot of opportunities for these type of discussions to occur to keep people thinking about it and engaged and on track to become a future faculty member. And uh, we're in the process of videotaping um, some of these narratives so that they can inspire um, other medical students and residents.
2: Wow, that's really cool. Uh, what advice would you give to a young person of color who is interested in pursuing a career in medicine? Where should they start?
0: So the good thing is, uh, as mentioned, I am a proud product of many pipeline and pathway programs. I think, you know, we know that medical schools across the country, whether osteopathic and allopathic, are developing K through 20 programs. It's critical for students who are interested in becoming a future physician to become engaged with these programs. At any time, you can start as early as high school, or college, or even post-bac. And it's not only about doing these programs once. I want you to consider continuity in your professional development. I want you to do one of those pathway programs every year, maybe every summer, or during every academic year. And the reason why is because one, it keeps you engaged with that network that's going to support you, guide you, advise you, mentor you, And most importantly, sponsor you for your next step, whether it's getting into medical school or whether it's succeeding at the MCAT or getting into another program. So, one, it's critical to get into a pathway program, and then it's critical to stay on track um, with pathway programs and stay engaged every step of the way. Even during residency and fellowship, there's pathway programs for professional development, um, including academia.
2: Okay. Do you think also getting involved with organizations like the AMA and some of those sections, is that helpful as well?
0: Absolutely. So there's different types of pathway programs. So I'm happy that you brought that up. So when I think about the different pathway programs that I've been a part of, sometimes I did a pathway program because there was an emphasis on MCAT preparation or in doing well in, in certain Um, courses. There's other pathway programs that maybe have an emphasis on teaching or research or service. And as we know, and I've benefited greatly, being a part of AMA, LMSA, SNMA, APAMSA, ANAMS, AMWA, all these organizations exist for a reason. And they exist for a reason because they bring together like-minded individuals They create a space to lead innovations in policy, community activism, medical education reform, and they create a safe, brave space to do this work. And along the way, while being engaged, you yourself develop. So while you're sharing your perspective, you're developing knowledge, skills, leadership skills. So I always encourage individuals as a form of being a part of pathway programs to become a member of AMA, LMSA, SNMA, APAMS, ANAMS. I go to multiple conferences every year, so I would say do more than one. It's definitely benefited me, and, and I think it it's important for everyone to remain engaged in that way.
2: Okay. How do you address the unique challenges faced by women, sexual and gender minorities, and historically marginalized racial and ethnic groups in healthcare, both in your research and in practice?
0: So one of the simplest ways to do this is to make sure uh, that you create a space within your demographic section of your research where you capture respondents' identity by Gender, by sex, gender identity, sexual orientation, race, ethnicity—that's critical if if you're going to be able to do comparisons or stratify data analysis by those three groups that you just mentioned: women, sexual and gender minorities, and historically marginalized racial and ethnic groups. So, one, you got to collect the data, and then two, you got to be respectful and mindful of the analysis that can be meaningful in addressing health inequities in these communities. I would say those are the two most important things to consider as you aim to address challenges for these historically minoritized groups in research. When it comes to practice, it's also being mindful. There's many ways to um, look up how your hospital or clinic is doing in terms of serving these patients. You can do chart reviews. Um, You could do prospective studies. You could do focus groups with community members um, by each of these identities, and just ask about their access to quality care, what's being done well, what's not being done well, and then introduce new activities, policies, and procedures. But most importantly, you have to hold yourself accountable. So if you're collecting data and you identify a problem, You should propose a solution and see if that solution actually worked, not just for the first year, but if there's a sustained positive response over time. And that's really critical.
1: Medicine doesn't stand still, and at the AMA, neither do we. AMA members are physicians like you who are shaping the future of medicine. Become a member today and join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org/movingmedicine.
2: What steps do you believe healthcare institutions should take to create a more inclusive and equitable environment for both patients and medical professionals?
0: So I, you know, I'm I'm really happy um, that that you framed the question this way because I, I do believe that healthcare institutions are responsible um, for everyone that that they serve, and that's a part of their community. So um, our patients, our medical professionals, but I would also say all of our employees, our entire team that is there to support our patients. And when I think about the overall team, it's not only our learners or the physicians or the faculty, it is also those people who register the patients. Um, those people who staff um, the garage, security, uh, the cafeteria, um, everyone who helps create a space for patients to receive care. I think, you know, one of the ways that we help create a more inclusive and equitable environment for all is to keep our eyes and ears open. See how situations play out listen to conversations, ensure that they're respectful, that there's a space for everyone to feel like they belong. Collect data, ongoing data, from everyone that I just mentioned to see how they perceive the environment, both the social and the physical environment in which they are providing and receiving care and services. And pretty much do it on a frequent basis but then use that data to drive change. And as mentioned, as you proposed, as I mentioned, as, as new policies and procedures and activities are done, evaluate that work and see if it's really making a difference. We're really good at keeping charts and monitoring outcomes based on lab work. We need to do a better job of taking the same approach to ensuring a more inclusive and equitable environment and doing collecting data, evaluating, and holding ourselves accountable is critical.
2: Do you have any success stories you've seen or any examples of this?
0: Well, I think um, for me, when, when I think back as a medical student, one of the things I was most proud of was helping to open the first LGBT center in the Bronx. It was called the Bronx Lesbian and Gay Health Resource Consortium. And at that time, which was really the early 2000s, there were minimal federal protections um, by gender identity and sexual orientation. There were some good um, state protections within New York State. It was a time when it was still uh, risky to declare yourself as being a part of the community or even an ally, to bring it up. You know, within the medical school classroom. So often many students and faculty worked with community-based organizations. And, and that's how I came to be a part and, and help co-found this particular LGBT center in the Bronx. One of the great things um, that I was able to do as a medical student was really work with colleagues and help do trainings at hospitals to educate um, practitioners on what were the unique health issues and health disparities for LGBTQ um, members. And help them thinking about how they can transform their clinical space to be more inclusive and equitable, like changing their registration forms so that people uh, could share their chosen pronoun, changing other questions so people can list um, their social support, who their partners were, who made up their family, changing signage and advertisements within waiting areas. So you saw beautiful depictions of families that were different than what you would typically see on the news. So um, we actually built a a campaign to promote primary care (laughs) access for uh, LGBT um, families and it was, um, it, it was, uh, we launched a health link line. I think the number was eight, six, six for gay care. So please don't use it now. It doesn't exist anymore. But that was just an example of, of different efforts, right? Creating a phone line, advertisements, and on these beautiful posters, we would depict, um, uh, a lesbian couple with their kids or, um, a couple, uh, a gay couple, um, to men or two women, um, or a family led by um, someone who identified as transgender. Just different beautiful depictions of individuals and families that are part of the LGBT community. So I would say that's one of the things that I'm most proud of and, and really shows how you can um, have a significant impact in many ways to, to create a more inclusive and equitable environment for minoritized groups.
2: Absolutely. Can you discuss any ongoing or upcoming projects or initiatives that aim to further promote diversity, equity, inclusion in the medical field that you're working on or that you're aware of?
0: Oh my God, there's so many. I don't think we don't have enough time, right? <laughs> uh, we really don't have enough time. But I, I would say that I, I think one of the things that we need to do better as a community is document our DI related work. And I say that because I, I think that call hasn't been made in the past. And, and to this date, um, there's a lot of missing information on which DI activities are the most efficacious in, in terms of increasing representation within the medical school class or the resident class, which medical education modules are most impactful to address unconscious bias, or to uh, provide greater cultural competence. And so I, I think we really, a, as we see the landscape defunding offices of DI, as we see efforts to remove titles of position, as we see individuals pushing for DI cultural competence, anti-racism, not to be taught in the classrooms. We must be vigilant in documenting, publishing our historical, our present efforts, the current discourse that's happening, and introducing new promising and best practices. Irrespective of a loss of funding, No one can take away our thoughts and our suggestions and what we're currently doing. And and we need to be mindful that we need to do a better job than prior generations of publishing our work. Not only publishing our historical work, our current efforts, but publishing better and best practices for the future. They can't take that away from us.
2: I feel like we need to shout that from like the rooftops, the mountains, like the ty- the h- highest peaks. <laughs> uh, what advice would you give to aspiring medical professionals from historically excluded racial and ethnic groups who may face barriers or obstacles in their journey?
0: So when I hear this question, what, what I wanna remind people is to pause and take a moment. Take a moment of what it means to be a historically excluded racial or ethnic individual today. It's hard. But can you imagine how hard it was 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years ago? We still have a ways to go. I know it's still hard. But if anything that our ancestors taught us is that we're strong enough, we're smart enough, we're resilient to succeed, that we have the assets to succeed. And if we really want to honor their contributions, if we want to honor ourselves, if we want to create a better space For ourselves and future generations, then we just have to keep on going forward. That's it. We just keep going forward. This ain't the first time. This isn't the first time or the last time, but we can learn every time and share that information with prior generations and let them know and reassure them that we've been through this and we got through it and we're better for it and we're stronger, and we're smarter, we're more resilient, and we're going to keep going. Whether it's in the community or within our medical schools or academic medicine, it's no different. You could apply the same knowledge and skills to not only survive, but to thrive. But that has to be the focus. You sit down, you cry, you shake it off, you hug each other, you hold someone's hand, and you keep moving forward. That would be my final message.
2: I love it. That was, that was wonderful. I think that's a great way to close out. Dr. Sanchez, it was a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you for joining me on AMA Moving Medicine.
0: Thank you, Sarah, so much for this opportunity.
2: I'm Sarah Berg. Thanks for listening. Until next time, please be well.
1: You can subscribe to Moving Medicine and other great AMA podcasts anywhere you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org podcasts. I'm Todd Unger, and this is Moving Medicine. Thanks for listening.